0: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Neuroscience. My name is Joseph Fridman, and I'm very excited to present this conversation. I host this channel alongside an amazing uh, fellow cadre of hosts, including the inimitable John Griffiths, the brilliant Anne-Sophie Barwich, the fascinating Christopher Harris, And Victoria Reedman, who is incredible and just joined us. So we're very happy to be bringing you interviews with folks that have uh, been writing the latest and best in neuroscience. And that is exactly what I have for you today. I'm presenting a book by Professor David Better, who we're very happy to have on. It's called On Task, How Our Brain Gets Things Done. It's out on Princeton University Press. Professor Better is at Brown University these days, a professor of cognitive science, a professor of psychology in the Department of Cognitive, Linguistic, and Psychological Sciences. His reputation precedes him if you're anywhere close to this field, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this book. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, David. Well, thanks so much for having me looking forward to it. Yeah. So this is a book uh, that I would say is about, you know, in, in a world of knowledge work, something that we're all fascinated with, right? How does our brain sort through the complexities of the world for us to actually get stuff done? How does that change as we age? What does that mean for those of us that have more issues getting things done or find certain tasks and certain types of task complexities easier than others? Um, When I was reading this book and the way that you kind of lay out this problem, one comes to think that cognitive control uh, by the human brain is both, as Homer Simpson said about beer, right? The cause of and solution (laughs) to all of uh, humanity's problems in the world. And I definitely have a different way of looking at what's happening in my own brain as I'm doing things like scheduling time to read this book, managing things like my schedule and thinking about all that work that my brain does for me, even when I'm making a cup of coffee, which is a, the wonderful way that you start this book out. I'm wondering, David, how did you come to be working on all of these subjects and what compelled you to write this book? Um,
0: well, you know, it was actually, it's actually funny. I think I came to the writing the book in the way probably you're not supposed to. Most people like wait for a point in their career, like a sabbatical or something to do this. And, (laughs) and uh, I spent my sabbatical instead reading in 2016, I was reading lots of books and, and, um, and it occurred to me that I really wanted a chance to sit down. There had not been an attempt to really introduce this topic um, of cognitive control in a you know, in a in a really authoritative and unified sense, I think to the to the broader community, both in both in our field, but also sort of more broadly beyond specialists. And so, this was a real opportunity. I, I really wanted to take the opportunity to to do that, to take that challenge. And so, I waited till the end of my sabbatical to start writing the writing the book, which is not something I advise anybody to do. Um, but uh, it was a it was a it was a great experience doing it because it was a chance to consider this topic, which I think you, I thought you you know nicely put it. I mean, really it's it's about how we how we link what we know about the world, right? The goals that we have and the the ways that we see the things we want to do, how we how we actually link that to what we do, and that's not a trivial problem, right? It's something that we take kind of take for granted right that we kind of in fact we like to assume that it's enough once you can once you know the rules for something once you know what you want to do or you can imagine it then you sh- you can just do it that's not the case at all and actually it's that's a really hard problem that the brain has to solve and it, and it affects so much in our psychology so much in our everyday lives and everyday behavior and so it's a really fun topic to treat across many different facets right because it, it has so many different types of expressions as, as you said i mean both in how we get our everyday things um, done tasks done how we manage all of our tasks why sometimes things feel really hard to do right why is it that and and then how things change over the span of our lives and so that's um our our capacity to to be independent functioning people and so i think that's why this topic has fascinated me for years and it was it was it was enjoyable to sit down and really try to think of it at that level of at the level of a book where you're really trying to treat it in a broader way
1: and so the the specific parts of the brain that you investigate in this book and that we get more and more familiar with over the course of the book were at the dawn of psychological science, not thought to have any function whatsoever, right? You, you open with a quote by William James that the parts of the frontal lobe that that you'll be kind of describing and laying out for us as prime among the brain regions that are responsible for cognitive control or that are recruited for cognitive control, that they had no function to speak of. And you talk about the, you know, something like the 40,000 lobotomies that were performed as a result and uh, the, the kind of resulting behaviors that we witnessed in those lobotomized folks, as well as a bunch of other cases actually led us to understand what a crucial, if somewhat hidden thing uh, cognitive control is. So I I guess I'm, I, I'd love to know about how you came across this in your professional life as a question. I think cognitive control is something that you can as you put in the book, and you can examine at many different fractal layers, it's sort of a, a meta problem in addition to something that you can see in folks that have syndrome or maladaptive kind of behaviors when it comes to cognitive control. So how did you come across this and start wrapping, wrapping your head around the scope of this, of this problem and the explanations that it required uh, neuroscientifically and behaviorally?
0: I, mean, I think that I mean I think you're you're exactly right that you know the frontal lobes in general right and and the the prefrontal cortex in particular have long been a puzzle right I mean that's been the funny thing is that people often think of the prefrontal cortex I think in popular press and, and in a lot of its uh, the way you'll see it used in just everyday. When people refer to that as a brain structure in everyday talking. It's sort of is like the seat of intelligence, right? It's like if you if you, that's the spot where all at all where the executive lives, and it must be you know the basis of everything that makes us you know um, able to make decisions and, and plan and be intelligent and so forth. And so, given all the stuff that we attribute to the to the prefrontal cortex, I actually think it was sort of it's it's surprising. To to know that for so many years people thought it didn't really have much function, and it wasn't because they didn't know about things like planning and intelligence. In fact, they they also thought that this early on, like in the late nineteenth century, people thought that this was the seat of intelligence. But they just found it from all these from patients and from uh, who had stroke or brain damage to that part of the brain, or from um, animal experiments where they would um, uh, surgically. Uh, uh, damage that part of the brain, that the, they, they didn't really find the, the effects were very subtle, right? And the kinds of laboratory tasks that were, were being done, you really couldn't find much of a, much of a deficit. And so, I mean, to put it in context, what you were, you know, citing regarding the lobotomy, it wasn't simply that it was considered functionalist. And so that led to the lobotomy. It was more that we didn't really have a way, and this is interesting from a scientific perspective, you know, science depends on a, um, Every observation we make, every measurement is is theory laden. Um, we think, and, and so when we when we want to, we can be observing things and not really considering them as scientists because we we lack the way to think about them. And executive function or cognitive control is, is a great example of that. So the kinds of cases that um, we were looking at in the in the early twentieth century and, and so forth, it was. Uh, it was just there wasn't a way to to understand the the problem, right? Because it was it wasn't expressing in the way we were testing it, um, and so it was. Uh, I think that did sort of lay a, a groundwork for thinking. In fact, there were there were reports like Donald Heb, for instance, reported a case of a patient who improved after damage to the frontal lobe. I think there was there was. Um, there, it was sort of a, a world in which it wasn't clear what the, the loss would be, right, the loss of, of, of the prefrontal cortex, but it was clearly unknown what the function was. And so I think the, um, what made it interesting to me to study, right, is that um, we, I mean, we now know, and since the, since the 1960s and forward, cognitive psychologists started recognizing that there were these functions that you need in order to uh, have any agent control itself. Okay. And that's really interesting to me. Because it's um, that's sort of at the base of what our our kind of ingenuity as as a human species, right? The fact that we can solve these problems, we can do things we've never done before. I, I think of COVID as the best example, best recent example of this, where we all just sort of overnight, practically, where within weeks we were changing every aspect of our lives, right? We we're like many of us, we're going from you know how we shop, how we socialize, how we talk to each other. The reason we can so we can do that and coordinate all of that is because we're able to conceive of something that we've never done before. And we're able to sort of organize our actions to to do that. And so that kind of problem, right. I think when has always interested me, right. How is it that we can do that? We can't program yet program an AI to do that. No other species does it in the same scale that humans do. And so, um, that 's sort of what, what led me to that, that same mystery, and so I think those two things together, right the fact that you have this mystery of, of this of this system, which is we now know as a, as a whole network that includes the frontal lobe, right is serving some type of function that is so fundamental, but it really it expresses itself in these complex um, Cases. These cases where we have to be um, uh, have to have to organize our actions in new ways in order to solve problems, and that and so it feels like that's a place where we can learn a lot, and that's what I think attracted me as a scientist early in my career to the problem.
1: Yeah, I guess I'm wondering why you think it took until, uh, you know, the 1960s and the 1970s and this whole kind of cognitive revolutionary moment for psychologists to really take up these ideas of control, which were obviously the seeds of those were planted by folks that were studying computers and agents and automated systems as early as the start of cybernetics, you know, its crystallization in the 40s.
0: Um, Well, well, I think, I mean, there's probably two two reasons. So one was, I mean, I think in the early 20th century, psychology was going through its period of, of, of strict behaviorism. And there's really no place for cognitive control and behaviorism, right? They're there, they're all if there's control, it's entirely because of of an input, right, a stimulus that comes from the world that that links to a response. You could have chains of those things, but there's no sense in which you can um, – you can, I mean, the, the most simple definition of control would be that the same input produces different outputs because of some internal representation I have, a plan, a goal, a rule, a norm, or whatever – Right, so the same thing happens right When I walk into an office, I decide to sit in the chair behind the desk or in front of the desk. Those two different responses are are changed based on the fact that i 'm in somebody else 's office or my own right that That kind of thing you can 't do in a, um, uh, in a behaviorist perspective, so they weren 't even looking there 's no such thing as, a, as something to bridge knowledge and action because it just that doesn 't fit fit into their psychology. Um, and it, rather, they're just trying to list all the possible input-output relationships. Effectively, um, the and so the, you had to have a change in the way psychologists were treating the, the the brain. But but as you pointed out, you know the cybernetics movement and so forth was already considering control as a concept. Um, uh, you know, just prior to the sixties, and uh, and then in the forties, and then basically, but the sixties you had the advent of the computer, which gave an example to psychologists of a of a uh, machine that had to be an executive agent. It had to control itself to do anything, right? You can, you can program subroutines um, and so forth into a computer, but they have to be that you have to control flow. You have to add if statements and while statements and so forth to make these um, computers to do anything productive, right? And those examples were explicitly cited by cognitive psychologists as, as why uh, there, there's a thing here to study. Uh, in terms of the the influence of, of cybernetics, I think to this day, though, that influence is still there because a lot of, a lot of those ideas of the fact that you could have that, that we live, we're not just acting. We're not just agents who act in the world, but we act dynamically. That means that, you know, anytime I, every, even though I make my coffee every morning, right? I, I'm, that's sort of my job in the house. I go down and run the drip machine. And, you know, it's a little different every time. There, and things happen on the, during the course of that because it extends in time as well, right? That didn't happen last time, right? I might, I might accidentally, you know, bump the, the carafe in the wrong direction and spill a little bit, or I might, or, you know, my kids might run in the room and distract me, or there's any number of of things that happen. And I have to stay on course to some degree, right? I have to be able to have some way of monitoring my current, where I am now, and then use that as you have some system of monitoring or feedback that that I can adjust to that as I go. But obviously, it's a hard problem, right? It's a harder problem than even just the kind of motor, simple motor control problems that were, that were the first that people looked at in that, uh, in that domain. Right now we're talking about sort of task control, right? Which is, which is abstract. It's extended over time. It, it comprises of these sort of abstract episodes that un, unfold in time. And, so, and yet the brain is, is, a, is a having to solve a control problem in that environment. And I, and I, I think that that in, in fact has really influenced theory for, for a number of years and, and people have different ways of trying to understand that.
1: And so as we start to understand what cognitive control is, we find that it interacts with so many other of the, you know, subfields that we think about in cognitive science. We're thinking about things like future thought and counterfactual future thought. You think about things like uh, the ability to generate behavior, to do um ad hoc adjustments on your behavior, as you just mentioned, um, that we can uh, compose actions and think about our goals in these kind of modular ways and reprioritize them. And when you put all of these things together, it starts to, um, any one of these things, obviously, you could probably demonstrate some experimentally, some example of in primates or bugs, um, even the ability maybe to coordinate actions uh, among a great group of uh, conspecifics or the ability to build complex structures that are useful not just for you but or maybe not even for you but for future generations but when you start to really tick each of these off more and more you're kind of left with humans as this prime example of the being that can do all these things put together i'm wondering what it's like to um and and you uh, and i think you give a really wonderful tour of each of these subfields and some of the most fascinating findings in them over the past, you know, fifty to hundred years in the book, I'm wondering what it's like to kind of sit, um, maybe as the prefrontal cortex does, right in the in in the brain, and co- be coordinating all of these different literatures and findings. Um, what it's like to resolve the kind of paradigmatic differences in each of them to end up writing, you know, synthesizing something like this book, which is its own kind of act of coordination and control and (laughs) creating a complex structure.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's no, to me, it's a blast. I mean, if you, you know, (laughs) it's, it's a lot of fun from a perspective of a scholar, it was to be able to work or try to think and, and about, um, these topics at a, at, a, at a broad scale, I think. You know, it's, it's as you point out, control by its by its nature, right? it's like you're studying essentially the the way the brain coordinates all of its various systems in order towards some directed purpose, right? And so it necessarily touches on lots and lots of different domains. Um, and so if you're a student of the brain or a student of the mind, it's a lot of fun to to try to do that from or to to inspect it from that from from that, you know. Angle, um, it's very it's and then and the book kind of licenses you, uh, writing a book licenses you to do that to some degree. So that that was a lot of that was a lot of fun, and you also get you gain new insights, right? You see connections among things that you didn't appreciate as much before. I think um, you know I was sort of I, I I had kind of I'd had some contact with these ideas obviously throughout my research, but I really came to appreciate much more the how there are costs and benefits to our to our flexibility right of mind right over the course of writing this that are sort of themes that come up again and again. let me, you know, as, as you were saying, we have a very, on the one hand, we can, one thing that makes us unique, lots of, of animals can do, Complex sequential things. I give an example in the book of a spider, for instance, that can build a web. It's a very, very complex, hierarchically structured action, right? But it's not compositional the way a human would build a web, right? The the way a spider does it, they can do it. You can you can simulate a spider building a web based on a set on a a very simple list of rules that have that relate to the last two threads the, the spider touched. Even though it's able to, you know, build very adaptive nets that can can adapt to their environments and 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 catch different kinds of of bugs and so forth. Um, but that it's been kind of it's it's developed that set of rules to build webs in, through the course of its evolution. A human um, would, you know, we do we take those tasks and we break them down into, into subcomponents and we build up those tasks. So we could we would build, if we were had to for some reason build a web right out of whatever materials we had available, we would do it in a very different way than a spider would right even though we're sort of trying to do a similar kinds of kind of task right because of the way we conceive of it but the flip side of that is that we um we suffer things like multitasking costs, like I think it's pretty wide, widely known now that we don't multitask well right but the part of the reason for that is because anytime because we build our tasks out of these building blocks that allow us to build lots of new tasks for things that we're doing we're often if we're do, um, going to be using the same building blocks for two tasks and the result is that they're going to compete and make it hard to do them at the same time and so the um, so it, there's a there are these um, interesting trade-offs that you don't really perceive as, as clearly until you start trying to think across lots of different domains. And I think that was a,
1: a real pleasure in writing the book. I'm wondering how this book might make us think about cognitive labor differently, and especially about attempts by folks like AI scientists and you know developers in, in industry and academia as they try to Automate different parts of the brain, right? With this ultimate hope of um, artificial general intelligence. I think you point out wonderfully that the brain is, in some sense, both um, its own servant and master. Right? It has to perform labor and manage that labor and benefit from the outcomes of that labor, which really uh, breaks a lot of the dualist ideas that we have about a- attention as something that happens maybe in the mind and not actually something that's you know instantiated by um, all these neuro and electrochemical happenings in our brain. I guess, uh, you know, what should computational scientists, um, computer scientists, uh, and folks working take from uh, these lessons? And how has it made you think differently about, um, you know, the kind of many different streams of self that kind of uh, inhabit each of us?
0: Well, I mean, I, I, you know, the, on the topic of cognitive labor, I mean, that that I think has a... Um, Interesting. I, I haven't actually thought before about the implications that I might have for someone who's designing, um, for instance, AI systems and so forth. But it it it's, it, it seems like an interesting question, right? That um, uh, that it came has come out in the last couple years about cognitive labor and cognitive effort has been why do we experience these effort costs. Right, and I think that you know, you know, and so what do I mean by effort cost? So whenever we do something hard, or we're thinking about something in a um, that's difficult, let's start there in a very general way. We we can we often experience a sense of mental effort. Like that was a hard thing to think about. And in fact, we know from from experimental work that if you give people the you know freedom to choose tasks, if all else is equal, right, if the reward they get for doing this task is the same, they're going to systematically avoid tasks that involve mental effort, okay, or mental, mental labor, involve this subjective experience of this being a hard task to do. What's been an open question for a long time, though, is what is it about a task that makes it effortful? Right, there's a sort of a circularity in this, right, as we would say. Right, you, is this task is effortful um, because we avoid it? Why do we avoid it? Because it's effortful. That doesn't. T- that you haven't learned anything about in that case, right? You want to know what is it about a task that makes it exp- that experience effortful? And one thing is, it's is it's it's not. It's it seems as though um, ideas which are kind of. Older ideas, um, I mean, they have a long history that we should, we should make. The effort is about resource conservation in the sense that you, like, like a muscle. In other words, like, I'm going to get tired. I'm going to exhaust my brain in some way and then not be able to do new tasks. Those haven't really, that metaphor hasn't held up well evidence right that you know so if you think about you know lifting a weight i can lift a weight um repeatedly over time my muscle fatigues and no matter how much i want to lift that weight i can't lift the weight just the muscle will not allow me to lift the weight the brain it doesn't seem to or at least the mind doesn't seem to work that way when you do with cognitive effort right we surely don't want to do if i gave you math problems to do all day right yes you surely wouldn't you do less and less math problems but it's not because you can't do just one more math problem Right? even if you wanted to. It's just you don't want to do one. The motivation goes down because it feels annoying to do them, but it's not an actual loss of the ability to do the, to do the lift, right, to do the math problem. Rather, what it seems is that we penalize tasks that, are, that soak up that ability to do multiple things at the same time, right? tasks that are occupying resources that give us these multitasking costs that are using resources that we need for lots of for lots of tasks those are the ones we, we tend to penalize with mental um mental effort costs and this is an interesting point i mean, and there's been debate there's debate about that and there's there are other ideas and other interesting hypotheses as well that the this, this simultaneity one is the one that i entertain the most in the book but maybe to someone who's designing an artificial system it's interesting to consider that the brain at a broad level the brain has built in ways of, pin- of, of identifying costs in doing certain types of things because of their the, the opportunity cost they have on doing other things or other types of other tasks, right? And actually has built in a system for, for monitoring and, and sort of making it so that there has to be enough enough incentive to actually do that task, right? To do that, to take up that resource. Um, and so I think that's a uh, you know, an interesting design feature that the mind has and the brain has that um, I don't know how much is considered right now in in, in, AI, in AI. Partly because AI by are, are, you know seem to be, you could always kind of add more more processors to them, right? So you know the the, the kinds of constraints that we usually think about don't apply. But I think they but they would pro- they might suffer if they were a general intelligence from the same kinds of costs that the human brain would.
1: Um. There's a there's a thing you said uh, that said there that I'd love for you to like underline and highlight. We're bad at multitasking, and so I, I mentioned kind of in my intro that um, you know, the reason that some uh, knowledge workers right might want to read a book like this is the same reason that they might want to read a book like say Cal Newport's Deep Work right? Everybody or The Shallows by Nicholas Carr or something. Everyone is fascinated with eking out value from their brain, from being more productive. And uh, I think in today's world of great external difficulty, right, because of the pandemic, because of economic precarity, because of just the, the kind of you know, sheer difficulty of uh, managing all of our own personal problems, let alone huge societal problems like you mentioned in the book Climate Change. I'm wondering what we might say about the ways that our desires for certain types of living and of of task doing and how those might conflict with our actual nature and our ability to solve certain problems and do, you know, engage in certain types of task doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, multitasking is a very, is a clear example of that, right? Where, I mean, we, we, you you feel like you should be able to do two things at the same time and therefore make more progress than you would if you did each of them by themselves. Right. But I think it's, I mean, it's definitely the case that that, that it was one of the most widely, reproduced findings in in i think psychology is that um if you try to do two things at the same time you're going to be wor- not just worse not just slower but th- you're going to be slower than if you had done them like in series one after the other right you you actually experience more of a, a cost in in your time it takes to do it and in the quality of the work um and it's and there's there are ways to make that cost a little less, but it's never going to be um, better. We just we don't we don't multitask well. Now that that general statement, of course, there are there are there are things we can multitask, right? So we can we can you know, prefer walk and chew gum at the same time, right? So there are you know an interesting problem though, that we address in the book is or address in the book is why is it right? Where do these costs come from, right? Why is it why why do they arise, and then what kinds of things? Affect them, right? And so one 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 factor that you know definitely impacts our our ability to work productively is how we structure our environment to, to help our control system, right? You can structure your world to some degree um, to you know give yourself the uh, you know to create to 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 support. Ability to engage in the kind of monitoring and selection and other control processes I describe, right to um, to work on a task. Um, you know, the, none of these things can cure something like multitasking costs, but they can certainly help us be more productive and um, and can help us uh, in terms of, of uh, as you say, kind of eking out a little bit of a mind hack in terms of trying to do do um, do a little bit better. Um, you know, another example is the way that we the way that we remember. I mean, I think one one of the interesting, um, I think, discussions um, for me about memory, ways to think about memory for me is that it, you know we often think of memory as being kind of a, a pretty our human memory as being um, a pretty flawed system, right? It's like it, it doesn't rival our computer or our, or our smartphone at all right? in terms of its ability to record. Uh, Record information in a way that doesn't get corrupted in time, but if you if you really conceive of how this is a point emphasized in the book, right? If you if you the human memory probably didn't really evolve to to give us a, a a record of our past, right? Rather, it's there for for our ability to generate. Um, likely, um, likely models of of the future, perhaps even, right? But certainly likely models of the past as well to inform our behavior. What it's there is it's, it's really good at is retrieving things that we need for whatever it is we're doing. And so as a result, if you want to remember things better, doing them in the context or connecting them to the tasks you're doing will help aid memory as well. And, you know, I discussed that in, in some detail the book as well. But that's another case where you can sort of, under, I think, understanding better about our control system and the functions of the brain and the mind helps us first just kind of understand why we are the way we are. Maybe, maybe, maybe gaining a little bit of understanding of ourselves is helpful in, in some way. But also that you can, you can understand more about how you can help to, stri- to support your, um, your cognition uh, by structuring the world around you.
1: Wonderful, and I'll uh, I'd like to kind of close um, with this chasm um, that this book really uh, makes us think about, which is the the difference between knowing something and acting on it, and uh, just how different these two uh, types of relationship to a process are. I'm wondering if you could uh, <laughs> reflect on that a little bit, and then you say something at the at the end of the book where you know this 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 might be this question of whether or not we can act on the things that we we know to be true right about how humanity needs to be able to collectively control our own circumstances lest we suffer kind of massive collective destruction and if you could talk a little bit about why you chose to to, to end the book that way and to extend the problem out to such a intense scale which I think is right on point for something like this
0: well there well there are a few reasons one is that I think it, it was a way of emphasizing a point that is very much at the heart of, of cognitive science is that, and cognitive neuroscience, is that a lot of what the problems the brain confronts are 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 computational trade offs that are going to be experienced by any comparable system. So things like uh, I emphasize dilemmas like uh, stability and flexibility, or um, you know uh, generalizability versus um, versus flexibility, and so forth. These are are um, are problems that any, any system is going to face. So one one thing to do is to emphasize that when, as a society, when we face, we want to. Contr- we also are engaged in, in a kind of control, right? Where we we want to, uh, we, we're going to face things like um, climate change, which are going to drastically affect us, right? We know we're coming in the future, and we 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 want to be able to. Um, change and, and, and engage in change that will help avoid those kinds of outcomes that we, we're going to face a similar problem that the brain faces in, in control. And even as in, in individuals, right, we can imagine, we can understand and believe, right, that the, that, um, the data that tell us that there's a, that something like climate change is going to happen, but um, we have to still take actions to try to, um, to avoid it. And those, and that is a knowledge, that's a knowledge action gap at multiple scales and therefore it's going to be informed by the kinds of problems we address in the book. And so I I try to be concrete in my discussion of that, right. In terms of what are the ways that, what could we learn right from the way that the brain controls itself, right. To understand how people and even a society might control itself when confronting something like, like climate change. Um, and it just also, I think emphasizes another, another point. So that's one reason for doing it. Another reason is I wanted to, um, um, also emphasize the point that you know cognitive control is. I think um, at the if we didn't have this function, this ability to conceive of a new reality, right, or conceive of a, a set of rules we want to live by that haven't been conceived of by before by a, by a human, and yet and can do it can actually get, can, can decide, we can actually start following those rules. Um, so our human civilization wouldn't exist the way we know it. Right? We, we, have, we have the ability as a society to um, collectively achieve goals, to change, to, to um, achieve, make real what we, what we imagine by virtue of our ability to, to solve this problem of connecting those ideas, right? That knowledge to how we actually act. Right, and it's and it's a and and so the the study of control is an interesting in, in a human is interesting because in the brain because it has these analogies that are actually kind of um, kind of are, are broad and I think quite deep in terms of any system that wants to solve that problem.
1: Thank you so much. Um... Uh, before I ask you um, what you're up to next, I just wanted to say that there's so many things that we we didn't get to that it happened in this book. It's a wonderfully uh, meta experience to read because you're talking about things like meta memory, the ability to stop an action or a thought, and what happens when you do. There's some things about aging, of course, that we didn't get to, and a lot else. Um, and so uh, the process of reading this book is really like I think meditative, or you know, really prompts a lot of reflection about how it is that we you know, go about like doing things in our lives and it makes the experience of doing those things uh, really different. So I wanted, I wanted to thank you for that and then ask you what you're setting your uh, cognitive control on next after this. <laughs> that's
0: a, that's a, a a great synopsis and I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Um, so, I mean, well, I, you know, I've, I've continued to um, uh, be interested in pursuing these problems about, about control. And I think, and Uh, I have a great group of, of folks in my lab. I've been, I really had the, had the, been very lucky to work with people both previously and and now who are, who are fantastic scientists. And so um, I'm excited to be kind of, to working with them on some new projects. And so one of our, um, one of the directions we're moving um, I think really, which, which we see as a big frontier in understanding this problem of control and actually has a lot of relationship to the kinds of problems that are, um, Seeing in artificial systems as well, like conv- convolutional neural networks, is how is what the computational properties of the neural network, of neural population codes. So the way that neurons, as a population and their firing pattern, the way that they encode information about a task, um, and and particularly its format. So is it being in its in its organization or its geometry, how that constrains the way it it's being processed? And I know that, that sounds quite abstract, but we actually think it's really, really important because on the one hand, if it there the we're interested interested in one particular property, which we call its dimensionality. If it's if if when when neurons or neural populations encode information using only a few dimensions like they essentially they do dimensionality reduction right um they those are really useful that 's a really useful process for doing generalization and abstraction, and that's a lot that i've you know i've focused and other people have focused on for years in the realm of cognitive control because you want to you want a, some way of encoding. You know, if I enter a new environment where I want to do a new task, I need a way of drawing analogies to things I've done before, right? I need to be able to generalize. And so that can be a useful property of the neural code. But um, we're now getting focused on the other side of it, is what does dimensionality expansion do for you? Right? What, what is it, how is it helpful to have a similar input come in and yet treat it very differently? And we actually think this is a central piece of, of, of control too. It's sort of like you know, doing, uh, if I'm like I'm um, you know, doing a Stroop task, right, or doing anything. A lot of control problems are it's the same input comes in, but I have to do something different with it. So I take these very similar inputs and I have to separate them. And that's what high-dimensional codes do. And so we actually are, um, and we think it's important for interference resolution, for multitasking, and even for how we end up, um, how we can make this transition to automaticity. And so um, that's our... Sort of our main direction right now is trying to understand the relationship between those computational properties and the function of cognitive control.
1: That's wonderful. I am um, one, one of the first things that ever intrigued me about this sort of topic was a, a paper I think by Tanya Chartrand and John Barg about a uh, the unbearable automaticity of being. Right. This. Uh, this. You know, because I think at the end of the day, these these, these topics um, impinge on uh, what it means for our own brain to be creating our own our context for living just as much as the external world does they it impinges on questions like free will and I think it's so incredible that we have such thoughtful and concerted inquiry into the into those questions. It's kind of a, an inquiry that, really takes stock of the evidence that's at hand, that's robust, but uh, and engages with the philosophical, the cultural, the sociopolitical, but from this kind of really firm base in the neuroscience and the psychology. So I appreciate that. And thank you so much for, for doing it.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. Sure.